Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. You're listening in to Family Business Radio. I'm your host, Anthony Chen. Today, we have two amazing guests with us. We have Amanda Kurd with Anchor Pilates and Aaron Thomas with Prenups.com. So kicking us off with the show, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. Thank you for coming on. So share with us a little story of what got Amanda into founding Anchor Pilates. So my background is I am trained as a physical therapist. And as I, as a physical therapist, you have to go through continuing it every year to maintain your licensure. I happened to take a class on Pilates. I'm like, this is really interesting. I ended up going to a local Pilates studio as they would have it. There was a discount for teachers because I'm a pediatric physical therapist within the school systems. Mm -hmm. So I went in and I was hooked and I was hooked to the point that I was like, I would really like to do this as a living. So I'm right now bridging both worlds a little bit of still being a PT. And then I opened my own studio. So Mm. that's how I started. Mm. Now, when you say the word PT or physical therapist, a lot of people may have the kind of the stereotype or misconception. Oh, it's just someone who either got hurt or went through some kind of uh, illness or surgery. But you specifically mentioned pediatric PT. Share with us the audience who are not in the know. Like, what is that? So pediatric PT is more neurologically based, or I specifically work with kids that have syndrome, so Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or other types of syndromes that you may see, or just a general developmental delay. Mm -hmm. And within the school system, I work with those kids on accessing their school environment. So I'm looking at, can they get up and down the stairs? Can they jump? Can they go out and climb on the playground equipment at recess? So that's where that kind of comes into play. Very functionally based, which Mm kind of lends over to my Pilates piece as far as I try and make the Pilates extremely functional for the client that comes into my studio. Yeah, The reason I ask that is because not only do I want to make sure that audience can get a perspective of what pediatrics PT is, because sometimes when we're thinking about running around as kids, we might just take that for granted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I actually work with a couple of clients within the Pilates realm in my studio right now. They happen to find me. One uh, young lady has cerebral palsy and we work using Pilates equipment to access that. And another little guy, he's eight and we work on, he also has a syndrome. I'm not going to tell you what that is. It's pretty rare, but he, we're working on mobility and stuff with him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely they have a little bit more challenge with their movement. It's not an easy thing. We're just sitting here talking effortlessly without having to think about how we're sitting. Mm -hmm. The kids I work with, they're struggling to keep their balance while they're sitting. Mm -hmm. So it's a much different realm than say a kiddo that maybe goes and breaks their arm and then has to go through rehab. Completely different scenario. Mm -hmm. Now with that very specific niche PT side of things and also not even servicing that particular demographic using Pilates as a tool, I'm assuming if that's the right verbiage yes, for that. I would agree. What got Amanda to go into that specific niche? Well, it also goes into as we get older and we age, I want to make sure that my body keeps up with me. And I find a lot of clients, especially my clients now, they'll have back pain or they'll have knee pain or they'll have this or that. And I'm like, 
what do you want to be able to do when you're 80 and you're 90? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be in a walker or do you want to continue walking? I'm trying to head you off at the pass and make sure that you're very proactive and maintaining your mobility and your strength so that you are able to do what you want to do. Just recently, I had a client email me saying that, thank you so much. I was able to bend over and touch my toes without pain for the first time in a long time. She takes care of her grandkids in her house. So I'm all about whatever that function is. I have master swimmers that come to me. I have tennis players. I have grandmothers that are, again, taking care of their kids. I have people that just have trouble getting up and off of the floor. That is a very functional skill that we need as we age. So I'm trying to taking that pediatric perspective of developmental movement progressions and bringing that into Pilates and making it more accessible. And also it's a little bit more fun than say, um, you know, go up and down the stairs as many times. That's not fun. So let's make it more fun and go on because if you're doing it just to do it, there's that aspect. But if you enjoy doing it Mm -hmm. and you feel challenged by it, and that's the other piece that I really love about Pilates is that You have to concentrate so much that you forget all of the other stuff that's going on in your life. Mm -hmm. So it's just you, your body and moving and being connected. Mm -hmm. Now, starting back to the ground floor is this word Pilates. So for a lot of people who might hear the word, oh, that's moving and like just flexibility. Explain Mm -hmm. to the audience, what is Pilates? So it's interesting. A lot of people, they come up to me, oh, Pilates, I need to be more flexible. And then to to me, that's not really what Pilates. Pilates is a system developed by Joseph Pilates. So he was a German born in the 1800s and he was infirm as a child. He had asthma, he had all sorts of stuff. And then in World War One, he was moved over to an internment camp in England. And very creative guy, he decided to take the bed springs out of the beds and help exercise the patients there. Mm-hmm. Hence born some of the equipment that is now used in the Pilates realm, which is the reformer. So he was all about making, again, functional movement, making things so that you are able to do them better. Pilates to me is about core strength. And when I say core strength, that is not just your abs. You have more, your core is more than your abs. It's your pelvic floor, which is the bottom portion. It's what holds your guts up. Mm -hmm. You have your abs in the front. You have deep back extensors that help. And then you also have your diaphragm, which is that breathing muscle. And those all work in concert together to provide a stable base for movement of your arms and your legs. So if you get into a position where if you think about a building, if you don't have a strong foundation, how well is that going to weather a storm? Mm -hmm. So by finding a stronger core and getting the parts to all work together in concert, then you can move your arms and your legs to do things a little bit easier. Wait, so you're telling me core is more than just six pack abs? Oh yes, it is. (laughs) In fact, I don't like the six pack abs. That's not your, that's in what we consider an external, more dominant muscle, as opposed Mm. to your deep stabilizers are the ones that are supposed to be on all the time. And that one, I like to call it the dinosaur muscle, the transverse abdominus. A lot of the muscles (laughs) in the body sound like dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. but the transverse abdominus works in concert again with the deep back extensors. Extensors are the muscles that move your back into extension and they work together to stabilize your main part of your body so Mm -hmm. that you can then move your arms and your legs on 
that foundation. So I guess a good segue in, in terms of a follow-up question is the name Anchor Pilates. What came up with that name? You anchor to your core. Yeah. I use the core as your anchor, mm-hmm. and then you use that anchor to be able to move off of it. Again, for an example, I have this piece of equipment that is lovely. It's called the OOV, which is OV, and it challenges your core, and you have to be able to stabilize that, and then you add on additional movements through your legs or through your arms, and you have to stabilize all that. It's very dynamic and it makes everything turn on and fire. The effects of this piece of equipment are phenomenal. Now for someone to for the uninitiated, it can be a little intimidating. It might look like a medieval rack or torture device. Yes, so yes. So when you come into my studio, I have pretty much all of the equipment. So I have the reformer, which looks uh, more or less like layman's terms, maybe like a leg press. To somebody in the gym. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's something called the Cadillac. That looks more like your hospital bed. And they are all run on springs, Mm -hmm. which provide varying resistance to activate your muscles. So you use these springs, and I use your my eyes on your body to see what isn't firing, what isn't activating, and give you the opportunity to fire those muscles that maybe aren't doing what they're supposed to. Mm So that a lot of times when we get into back pain or hip pain or something like that, it's not good mechanics. Something is more dominant and something's not working the way it should. So with my eyes on you, I can see, oh, that's not doing what it needs to. And I will guide you through an exercise or do a specific activity to get you to get those a little bit more in concert and a little bit more symmetric. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a couple of things in terms of whether it's imbalance or weakness in certain areas. Now, the general stereotype is, oh, if I'm feeling pain in my lower back or knees, oh, the doc might say, oh, you're just getting old. It sounds like that's not just part of getting old. No, no. You can definitely reverse some of that back pain. Obviously, if there is a medical condition, there are certain things in the spine where you can have narrowing of the canals, and I'm not going to get too specific into that. You obviously... Before you start any exercise program, you want to make sure to get checked out by your doctor to make sure that you are cleared for that sort of activity. But absolutely, a lot of back pain is just people not aware that we, if you think of posture nowadays, we're all slumped. We all have that tech neck. Our neck is extended, our our head's forward, we're all slumped over. Take a look at my 21-year-old son. All of that sort of stuff, that stuff is reversible if you put your mind to it and you have to think about it. It's work initially. Mm -hmm. When I first got into Pilates, I had a little bit more of a rounded spine. I come by it naturally. My mom has the little old lady hump. And I was like, I'm not going to go that route. Mm -hmm. And I have really worked hard and I really think about how I sit or how I walk in the hallways at school. I make sure that I'm upright, that I'm not looking down at the ground, that I'm looking forward which also lends more towards balance. Mm -hmm. So when you're not looking, if you're having to constantly look at the floor when you're walking, you're not relying on your body to give you feedback as to where you are in space. You're relying very heavily on your vision system Mm -hmm. to maintain that balance. So I would challenge you to look forward and be able to use your body senses as to where you are in space. And this is like a confession from a PT. A PT is mm-hmm. having challenges for us non-PT folks. I can only imagine how imbalanced 
Yes. <laughs> How body is that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, again, I work with several clients that have different issues, knee, ankle, hip. Mm-hmm. I work with people that don't have issues too. And they just want to, I work with a Pilates instructor. She was actually my instructor. Oh. So it's just fun to be able to work with all the different aspects, but my true passion is making people feel better about how they feel in their body and how they're able to function in their body. Mm-hmm. Just being able to say, I feel great when I leave. That's the biggest compliment you can give me. So, so you're not uh, out there to make them sweat and feel pain because it's that other misconception of people. Oh, if I'm going to the gym or as the holidays are, are coming around mm-hmm. the corner and a new year's uh, resolution, Oh, I'm going to hit the gym. And if I don't feel pain, I'm not doing anything. And it doesn't sound like that's the case. No, yet. it's not the case. And now I will say a lot of my clients come in and they're like, this doesn't look hard and I'm sweating. And they're not like your heart rate's not up, but you are physically active enough to the point of your muscles activating that people will break a sweat. Mm -hmm. But it's very much a strength building, confidence building as well. Because Mm -hmm. when you, I have a client and I'm like, look at what you did. You just were able to hold that plank for five seconds and before you couldn't even get into the plank. Mm -hmm. So it's a very much being able to feel accomplished in what you're doing and just feel strong where you are in your body. Mm. What do you find kind of the, the commonalities among most of your clients who come to you? Is there a particular common theme of issues they're trying to resolve? I would say most are looking to move without pain, mm. if I had to be frank. Mm. That's the majority of my clients. Now, my two clients that are a little bit off more neurologic. Mm -hmm. They're looking to normalize their function and being able to normalize their tone. So tone being the resting state of your muscles, they tend to be a little more tight Mm -hmm. in certain muscles and can't move one leg independent of the other leg. Mm -hmm. So in those situations, it's more getting a normalized functional movement and using the Pilates equipment to do that. But the majority of my other clients, they just want to be able to feel strong and move and be able to do their activities of daily living mm-hmm. without pain. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who are primarily coming to you, where it sounds like the case where they're already at injury or, or pain-wise, mm-hmm. what is the prescription, if there, if any, in terms of coming to you before that? As a Pilates instructor, I don't have to have a prescription, if, if that's what you're asking mm-hmm. as far as from a doctor. Now, mm-hmm. I do frequently ask doctors. I get a lot of my referrals from PTs. Oh. I have a couple of really good relationship with some PTs, and it's a beautiful thing because I can converse their language mm-hmm. back and forth, and I can collaborate with them with their patients and my clients, and it's a very nice two-way street as mm-hmm. far as being able to help the client excel the most. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a particular, I would say for someone who, cause you mentioned a lot about people who just one want to move without mm-hmm. pain. What about those who are, uh, let's say physically active, whether they're I don't know, tennis players or, mm-hmm. or let's say triathletes, is this something they should also incorporate as part of the training or come Absolutely. to you? Okay. Think if you are a tennis player mm-hmm. and you're going to do a serve an overhand serve, Where does that power come from? It doesn't come from your arm. 
It comes from your trunk. Mm -hmm. It comes, you anchor to your trunk to be able to follow through with that serve. So the stronger you are in those rotational patterns and the stronger you can connect to those, the stronger your serve's going to be. Same thing goes with golf. Golf is a very rotational sport. So if you are able to anchor into your core, so to speak, you are able to use your hips to pivot, to swing through, to be able to hit the ball farther. One of my clients right now is a emerging golfer. And she's, I have noticed such a big difference with my golf game Mm. since we're doing Pilates and I'm incorporating specific rotational strategies for her to strengthen her swing. Mm. So again, it just, and again, the master swimmer, another rotational sport, when you're talking about the freestyle We also work on a lot of extension-based stuff just to counteract our world of being hunched over. Mm -hmm. So extension is always in the mix for all of my clients. Mm -hmm. Now, moving into, so we'll touch a little bit about those who are already in pain or Mm -hmm. maybe recovering uh, from injury or maybe have some neurological issues. And then we're brushing just a little bit about uh, enhancing, let's say, Mm -hmm. sports performance. What would you say for those who are like on defense? I'm not necessarily in pain right now. I'm moving all right, uh, and I'm not out there trying to be like a top tennis right. pro. What is there value for me in just even looking and exploring? Absolutely. Again, I am looking at this down the line. What are your goals when you are 80 and 90? Mm. Do you envision yourself in a walker? Do you envision yourself in a nursing home? Or do you envision yourself being able to do what you want to do? Go travel in Europe and walk the cobblestone streets. So by doing Pilates at an earlier stage, say before you get in pain, we can avoid some of those painful patterns to start with because we can see some of those imbalances before they've gotten to the point of being painful Mm -hmm. and head them off at the pass. So in, in, in terms of those who are thinking, okay, if I want to do X, Y, Z and be mobile, let's say 70 mm-hmm. or 80, or a quick example you mentioned or shared is the, the grandma who is now able to mm-hmm. get off the floor and yes. keep up and <laughs> play, mm-hmm. play with her, their grandkids. Uh, do you find that's their, their primary motivation? Like, hey, I want to just at least keep up with, with my grandkids? Yeah. For some of those clients, absolutely. Another client, it's just they want to look good. They want to feel good and they want to look good. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Pilates can suit your needs, however, what those needs are. Mm -hmm. My personal branding of it, though, is definitely functionally based. So Mm -hmm. I want you to be able to do what you want to do, whether that's golf or walking or picking up your grandkids. Mm -hmm. Now, since we're on a topic of preparing the body or heading off at the pass of whether it's injury or pain and especially if we're going to looking at let's say age 70 or 80 and still be able to move around things that we might be taking for granted now as we're mm-hmm. a little young still uh, are you familiar with what is it the book outlive i think it was with Peter? yes we've the, talked okay, about yeah. that book yes uh-huh. and there is a whole litany of research relating movement and muscle strength mm-hmm. to cognitive functioning there's a ton of stuff out there right now and how the myokines which are these specific muscle enzymes within the body Mm -hmm. that can act to counteract some dementia, Alzheimer's movement is the key to prevent some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now to also look at other, I say myth or misconception, because when you you correct it in terms of plot is not just flexibility, there's Mm -hmm. also a lot of core strengths involved and and using that core as as is particularly comes to your branding anchor. Mm -hmm. That's where we're starting the base point of, 
what is some other misconceptions that people may have of Pilates that you also want to like, oh, that's only half the picture, but here's the full picture. So if I had to make a guess, I think a lot of people think that Pilates are just for females. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Pilates are for dancers is another common conception. A lot of the Pilates instructors that originally trained under Joseph Pilates, it got its movement in the dance world. Dancers came to him because they were injured oh. and he rehabilitated them. They trained under him and then took it out to the public mm-hmm. and their dance studios and stuff. So a lot of the stuff that you will see in a Pilates studio is more dance inspired than what Joseph Pilates originally was he was a boxer. Oh. He was very athletic. And if you see pictures of him in his like 80s, he's in these little white briefs <laughs> and he's striking a pose, being extremely strong. And he's a strong, virile man. And mm-hmm. yeah, guess what? A man developed Pilates. It's not a female thing. Well, it Pilates, works for everybody. Pilates got to have another marketing department. And I didn't know about that particular, a boxer, a pugilist mm-hmm. that, that, that founded <laughs> Pilates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a circus performer too. Oh. Yeah. He was a jack of all trades and all of the equipment he made, there's a specific piece of Pilates equipment called the chair mm-hmm. and it could be flipped over and used as a chair in a little teeny tiny New York apartment. Oh, so it was, you had your flip it one way. You can mm-hmm. do your exercises. You flip it the other way. It, let me tell you, you'd have good posture sitting in it. Cause it's not very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you on your toes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Since you dropped that little nugget and where a boxer founded Pilates, then do you find perhaps, I guess, male clients hit, hit touch on the elephant in the room mm-hmm. is that, do they find it just as challenging, if not more challenging than the, the sports that they're involved in? To a degree, yes, because it's quieter, if I can say. It's not this big, if you think of boxing, it's all this effort, all this velocity, all of this force. Mm -hmm. And Pilates forces you to slow down a little bit and connect. And you can get a really strong guy and you can get him doing a particular move and he'll be shaken like a leaf. Oh, So it's just the difference. And I always say the smaller the movement is, the harder it should be because you should be connecting your brain to that muscle a little bit more to get more activation out of it. Mm-hmm. There are some big sweeping, huge advanced movements in some of the advanced repertoire of Pilates. But to me, that's not where it is. Pilates is accessible to anybody. And I do mean anybody. I got my 76 year old mom doing a little bit of Pilates. Wow. It's for anybody. So it sounds then addressing another elephant in the room is for kind of the quote unquote stereotypical tough guy, gym guy, mm-hmm. whereas either a power lifter or, or particularly when you use that verbiage, connecting the mind to body mm-hmm. in the bodybuilding world, that's like priority number one. Oh, absolutely. Because can you imagine lifting, say you're going to do a bench press of 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. If you aren't connecting your arms and your shoulder blades into your back, how well do you think that's going to work? You're going to rely, and I go to the gym, I lift weights, and I'm looking, it's very interesting as a PT and a Pilates instructor to watch people in the gym. Mm -hmm. Some of it scares me sometimes because I'm thinking, oh, that's an injury waiting to happen because if you don't have the good form and you don't have the good connections to your core, you are relying on something else, whether it's a joint Mm -hmm. 
or whether it's a smaller muscle that's not that's doing over than what it should, mm-hmm. that's how injuries happen. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Yeah. I have one of my client the Pilates instructor, her husband came to me and he's a big pumper right. of weights and things. And he had a hard time with the smaller controlled movements mm-hmm. because we go into all those external strong muscles and we don't connect them yeah. to where they should. I imagine for your bigger clients, it might be a little humbling. Then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pilates is humbling to everybody, including myself. Mm-hmm. You go into, I will go occasionally have private instruction because it's always better when eyes are on you than when you're just doing it because they can see things that you can't when you're doing an exercise, you can't see what your body looks like necessarily. And when eyes are on you, they can correct that form and they can give little tweaks. Oh, try this, Mm -hmm. try that. And that's the beauty of one-on-one sessions is that it's you, the instructor, and it is catered to your body as opposed to a class. You can go in and there's that, I got to catch up with this person or I got to do what that person does. And that's again, how injuries can happen because you're trying to follow along and you don't want to be the one singled out doing your own thing. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of power in holding back in a class saying that's not right for me. And I highly advocate if you do classes and there's something that doesn't feel right, don't do it. Mm -hmm. It just don't, it's not worth the injury that it's going to take you down to eventually. So essentially, don't ego live, and, and it's harder to. Well, well, I guess I'll just ask: Is it even possible to quote unquote ego live per se, or overdo something in Pilates? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, if you are doing that equipment, if not used correctly, can be dangerous. I mean, loaded. Yeah. So if you were to just say let go of something, it's gonna it's gonna go. Mm. And there's a lot of stuff that is the chair in particular is a piece of equipment that can be, it's considered a more advanced piece of equipment. You can do it with beginners, Mm -hmm. certain exercises, but there's other stuff that it, if you are not careful, Mm -hmm. you can absolutely hurt yourself. Okay. Then it sounds like, but that's more of the flashy side of things. It sounds like Mm -hmm. everything else you really touch on the most basic element are the smaller movements. You don't mm-hmm. need to go these fancy movements no. to really make major no. impact or improvement. No. And to me, if you're going into a Pilates class and you're doing all these lunges and you're jumping and all of that stuff, I, I argue that sometimes that might not be the true essence of what Pilates is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking for the connection. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the control. I'm looking for... And if you get that control and you want to go into those more advanced things, fine, I'll take you there. Mm-hmm. But you need to demonstrate to me first that you have that. Mm-hmm. So if we could boil down a particular philosophy of anchor Pilates, what would that be? So I have three tenets. It's uh, strength, posture, and balance. Mm-hmm. I hit all of those in every session. Balance especially starts to go when you turn 50. I just turned 50. Uh, your balance systems start to go, which are your inner ear, your eyes, and as well as your joint perceptors. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't challenge it, use it or lose it. Uh-huh. So I incorporate balance into all of my stuff um, because just the risk of falls hap- increases as you get older. Mm-hmm. Strength, you have to have the strength for the balance. And then postural alignment, how well can you hold yourself up against gravity? 
you can't carry things. If you think about some of the tribes in Africa where they stack those big, huge baskets on their head and they are able to walk with that amount of weight, it's because their spines are perfectly aligned and your spine is meant to take that load. Mm -hmm. It's okay to take that load because it's stacked just right. If you think about a Jenga tower, if the Jengas are all right there, and you push down, they don't go anywhere. But if you have some pieces out of place or they're off center and you try and press down on that load, it collapses. Mm. So for those who either A, are either injured or want to up their tennis game, whatever sports or athletics mm-hmm. they're in, or let's say fix their Jenga tower, yep. how can they best find you? So I have a website, www.anchorpilates.com is one way. I'm also on Instagram, which is anchor underscore Pilates underscore LLC. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook, I'm at anchor to your core. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed this. Great. Now we have Aaron Thomas with prenups.com. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Great. So kind of share with us, well, the name itself, prenups, give it away. But for those who are not in the know, what is a prenup? Yeah, yeah, great question. A prenup is really just a set of rules that defines uh, how your finances are treated both during and, yes, if necessary, after a marriage. Mm-hmm. So share with us what, what got Aaron to go into the journey of creating prenups. Yeah. So I've been practicing law for over 20 years and the strong majority of that time I've been practicing family law. I got into it in 2007. Uh, I was recruited into it by a firm that needed somebody with trial experience. I had the trial experience. So I got into it Mm -hmm. at the time. I didn't really know anybody who had been through a divorce. Most of my friends hadn't even been married, much less had they been divorced. My parents just celebrated 57 years together. It really wasn't something that I was familiar with. And boy, was it eye-opening litigating divorce cases uh, Mm -hmm. at the beginning. I routinely had people come into my office and say, what do you mean she wants half of my retirement? What do you mean he wants half of the house that I paid the mortgage for the last 20 years? Mm -hmm. And it really struck me that marriage is a legal contract. It is an emotional relationship. It's a romantic relationship, but it is at its core, a legal contract. And many people had never read the contract. It didn't know what it said, didn't know what they were signing up for, certainly from a financial and legal standpoint. And my my first takeaway was not prenup. My first takeaway was don't get married. <laughs> so okay. anyone that would listen, uh-huh. friends, family, I would tell anyone, do not get married. Certainly have a party, uh, move in together, invite all your friends, throw rice in the air, wear a white dress, change your last name if that's your thing, but don't actually go through with the legal act of getting married because most people don't know what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was a long time ago and my views have evolved on the issue over time. And spoiler, I am happily <laughs> married myself. And really it was when I, uh, my then girlfriend and now wife started talking about possibly having a family ourselves, mm-hmm. possibly getting married ourselves, that I said, okay, if we're going to get married, how can I do it the right way? Is there a way for us to get married and avoid the pitfalls of all my divorce clients over the years? Mm-hmm. Can we reverse engineer a marriage where we eliminate the things that broke up couples 
that I litigated their divorces over the years. And we sat down and basically came up with a list of things. We want to be transparent about our finances on the front end. We want to have like very clear guidelines as to what's mine, what's yours, what's ours. And certainly we wanted to take the possibility of a messy divorce off the table 100%. Mm-hmm. And the answer for us was putting all of these types of things into a prenuptial agreement, not just how we would split things up if we got divorced, but also how would we manage our money during the divorce, during the marriage itself? How would we uh, resolve conflict? How would how are we going to manage the money in our own relationship? And once we did that, we wrote our own prenup and friends and people that knew us found out what we did. And they said, this is something that needs to be shared with the world. Most people think you hear prenup and you think you're planning your divorce before things even get started. All you're doing is splitting up your assets before mm-hmm. you even get married. And they didn't know that there are things you can do in a prenup that benefit the relationship itself, that benefit the marriage itself. And so that really started me off and got me on this mission to help couples set up their finances in the correct way so that they avoid hopefully ever seeing the inside of a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Well, just with, with with a start like that, I imagine the audience have a million and one questions to ask right up. But I think the most pertinent one is you were all hot about never getting married. One, how'd you find your lady? And two, what was it that convinced you? Yeah. Marriage is for us. What's funny is when me and my wife met, we were both anti-marriage. I had been <laughs> okay. a divorce lawyer for a number of years and she was a couple years off of a divorce herself. Oh. And so we actually bonded during our first conversation about being anti the establishment of marriage. But it, you know, what I think what really made us come around is believing that there is a way to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, what I identified um, are three principles that make for uh, a good prenup and not coincidentally make for a good marriage. So transparency, communication, and fairness. These are the things that I think lend to uh, a successful relationship, but they're also the elements of a successful and positive prenup. Mm-hmm. Now you touch a little bit on uh, on the stereotype. Oh, if you got to getting a prenup, that means you're already planning for the end. But it sounds like you're laying down some kind of train tracks to keep the train on the track. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Going back to the elements that I was talking about, so mm-hmm. transparency. So. For a prenup to be enforceable in all 50 states, Mm -hmm. both spouses have to disclose all of their assets and debts to each other. Mm -hmm. And we do that in the prenups that we draft by literally having each spouse draft a net worth statement and we attach it to the back of the prenuptial agreement. Mm -hmm. For some couples, this is the first time that they've ever gotten this granular and transparent about their finances, right? The amount of credit card debt that you have or your student Uh. loan debt may not be first date conversation <laughs> That'd be a little awkward, you know? <laughs> right and, and sometimes it doesn't come up on the third date or the fifth date yeah. and it's very easy for those things to never be shared but mm-hmm. at the same time nobody wants to get married and be surprised that yeah. their spouse has 50 grand of irs debt and they only find out when the irs starts garnishing their tax refunds uh-huh. when they're married or that their spouse has 100 grand in credit card debt and they only find out when they're applying to for a loan to buy a home together and so you know, having that level of transparency at the beginning of your relationship when it comes to finances is, to me, just the first critical step for for getting married. Mm-hmm. And then communication, 
would be the next step. And that is setting up certain rules about how the money is going to be treated over the course of your marriage. I call it the first step, I call it the money bucket system. So you've got you got mine, you've got yours, and you've got ours. So what that really looks like in reality is you've got a joint bank account and you've got two separate bank accounts. And most couples will do either what I call the outside in approach, where all the money goes into the separate accounts and then they each contribute maybe a certain percentage or a certain dollar amount to the joint bank account. And that joint bank account pays for their joint expenses while they still have some spending money that they can do what they want with without oversight Mm -hmm. uh, of the other spouse. And some people do the inside out plan where all of the income for the household goes into the joint account. And then each spouse gets an allowance, if you will, that goes out into their separate account. Mm -hmm. But having this three bucket structure, I have found works best for couples. It helps deal with the issue where one spouse is a saver and the other spouse is a uh, spender because you have very specific amounts of money that are in your separate accounts and the joint account is only used to pay for joint expenses. Setting up those kinds of rules. Uh, my wife and I have a rule in our prenup that says if either of us is going to spend more than $500 from a joint account, we've got to check with each other mm-hmm. before, it, before it happens. Yeah. I find that everybody's got a number I've done a, a prenup for uh, a professional athlete who was like, anything under $10,000, you, you can spend it without <laughs> it's you know, any kind of check. Yeah. I don't have it like that. My number's a little bit lower, but everybody's got a number okay. where they would like some kind of communication before that amount goes missing from the yeah. joint account. It's just building in communication rules into your agreement into your financial practices Mm -hmm. is a a very healthy thing for relationships and and something that we put literally into our prenuptial agreements as well. Yeah. Maybe I'm naive or maybe I'm a little crazy because I I would have imagined these conversations should have been had before the marriage, but it sounds like this is the first time they've ever had this conversation by the time they get to you. Yeah. Okay. If you are a professional in the world of finance, then you probably are the kind of person that on the second or third date are having financial conversations. Oh, we hit on on the first (laughs) day. We were trying to scare each other off. That's a side story. But yeah, maybe I just took it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people take it for granted, but it is, these are not conversations that I, this is what I learned in doing divorce work is these are not conversations that every couple has. And I did divorce after divorce where people come in my office and I say, okay, what's out there? And the people sitting across the table from me didn't know what their spouse earned. They didn't know what assets were out there. They didn't know what debts were out there. Some people don't know where their spouse even banks. We're checking the mailbox to see what statements are coming in the mail just to even know what banks to subpoena. And if that is the default in your household, if there's not transparency around finances, there's probably not transparency about other things in, in your household. I believe that the the financial habits in your household dictate the personal dynamics of your marriage as mm-hmm. well. And so if you are in a relationship where like one case I had where the husband made 200 grand a year and he gave his stay-at-home wife an allowance of $300 a month without knowing anything else about this couple, you could probably guess what that relationship look like, uh, right? Because the financial dynamics of your marriage dictate the personal dynamics of your marriage. And conversely, if the financial dynamics of your marriage are set up in a way that respects the spouse, that doesn't have two spouses living in the same household, but different socioeconomic classes, mm-hmm. that has respect for both spouses by instituting some rules uh, and guidelines around communication, around spending, um, around saving, around financial planning, around retirement, um, then and maybe I'm naive for believing this, but respect and communication in the financial arena of your life is going to bleed over 
and generate respect and communication in other areas of your relationship as well. Mm-hmm. I'm just hearing this sort of, <laughs> I know financial reasons, uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is typically like the number one stressor that would lead to divorce. And it sounds like this kind of conversation is rarely if ever even approached upon and until actually the divorce proceeding comes around. Is, is that correct? Yeah. It, finances is such a difficult topic to broach. Talking about money is very taboo in our society. And for couples that are getting married today, it is so much more complex than even just one generation ago. And so it's just so much more challenging for today's couples getting married to figure out how to manage their finances. So a couple getting married in the 1960s, my parents got married in in the 1960s, and the average couple getting married back then, number one, they got married at at average age, about 21. They, their financial life was extraordinarily simple. They had maybe one or two bank accounts between the two of them. Credit cards were not really even a thing back then. 401ks hadn't been invented. You could still work your way through school, mm-hmm. something that's laughable today. So student loans weren't yeah. six figures, average of student loans. So the average couple getting married back then, they didn't have they didn't have a business. They didn't have any equity in a property. If a couple back then were a business, they were like a startup mm-hmm. in your garage from complete scratch. Contrast that with the average couple today getting married on average at age 30. Oh. And that those spouses are likely to have four to five bank accounts each, three to four credit cards each, one to two retirement accounts each, a couple cars, maybe with loans. Maybe one of them has a condo with some equity in it. Maybe there's a small business there, mm-hmm. right? And maybe more importantly than all of that, they've got a decade of entrenched financial habits that they have built up since they moved out of their parents' household. And trying to merge all of that just on a whim without some real structured conversations. If the couple getting married in the 60s was like a startup, the couple getting married today, it's like a corporate merger. And you would just never do something of that magnitude without a written agreement of like, how are we going to actually pull this off? How are we going to merge these two financial corporations Mm -hmm. and not try to be choking each other two years, two years into this whole process. And so, you know, creating the framework where couples can have these conversations and then put down in writing a contract of this is what we're agreeing to, Mm -hmm. I think is one of the best and most loving things that you can do for your relationship. Yes. A prenup could actually be a romantic thing that you do for your relationship because it is, is an investment in your future and uh, avoiding the arguments that, like you said, are like the most common arguments that couples have. Mm-hmm. It's almost like more money, more problems. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it is much more complex and it creates more problems if, if not handled carefully. Mm-hmm. Now, you touch a little bit or hit the nail on the head because I, I can already hear from the audience or people as they're hearing this for the first time, like, oh, you know, that's not romantic at all. You don't trust me. And then they go banter back and forth. But, but it sounds like you're laying the foundation in terms of, well, trust is built on that transparency factor. And if there's no transparency, I, I would find it hard to argue that that is love. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what I've found is people's objection to prenups is really an objection to the stigma of prenups or what people believe that a prenup is. And if your prenup is literally just a plan for divorce, then yeah, I can see how that's not going to be like a huge positive for your relationship. Mm -hmm. But if when people are confronted with the component parts of a prenup, 
you know, do you think it's a good idea for us to be transparent with our finances to the point that we literally write everything we've got down on paper before we get married? Do you think that it's a good idea for us to have a conversation about how the money flows through our bank accounts? Are we doing an outside in? Are we doing an inside out? Should we contribute 50-50 to our joint expenses? Does everything go in one pot? Being very clear about what's mine, what's yours, what's ours, who could deny that that's like a good thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing we do is we've got something that we call the annual shareholders meeting. <laughs> what that looks like is my wife and I, we have it on our calendar. It's a repeating event every year, December 1st, we sit down and we have an agenda that we talk about. What was our spending like this year? What is our savings like? Were there anything, biggest surprises, you know, that we didn't prepare for? What do we want to plan for next year? What are our big goals? Are we happy with the amount of allowance that each of us have right now and putting, is it a good idea to have an annual meeting and talk about the finances in your household? Or should we have spending rules? Should we each have our own play money that we can do what we want with and make sure that the joint account pays for the things that we plan around? And yes, can we agree what would be fair if God forbid our relationship doesn't make it like so many relationships that we know Mm -hmm. don't make it. Can we agree what would be fair a fair resolution while we still love each other, while respect is high, while communication is high and make sure that we don't end up being one of those couples that spends 20 to 25% of our net worth fighting over who gets the other 75% mm-hmm. over the course of two years in a courtroom that doesn't do anybody any good. Lawyers. Right. Except for the lawyers. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I say that as a lawyer myself, you don't need to make the divorce lawyers rich. There's another option. You can opt out of that system And I think when people look at a prenup from that perspective, they're a lot more open to the idea. And I think that's why we're seeing such a huge increase in um, couples that are getting prenups going into marriage. Mm. So it it sounds like you don't need to be a uh, athlete or bajillionaire to consider prenup as a good option. Uh, Thank you so much for bringing that up because that is one of the most common misconceptions. So one Avoiding a messy divorce is good for everybody, right? Mm. And a lot of people say, I don't have anything coming in. I'm broke coming in. Like, why would I need a prenup? What makes divorces messy is not what you had coming in. Most people agree. If you had that before you met me, like you keep that. No problem. It's what people accumulate over the course of the marriage that Mm. makes divorces messy because everybody thinks that they did the majority of the work in a marriage. (laughs) That's just how things work. In a true 50-50 relationship, each spouse feels like they're doing 70% of the work, yeah. <laughs> right? Because I don't see you when my wife is doing the dishes, but I sure see it every time I take the trash out. My work is visible to me. And in 41 out of the 50 states, they're equitable division states, which means the court is required to divide your marital estate equitably, but that doesn't necessarily mean equally. Mm-hmm. And you're allowed to bring up pretty much anything you want to try to convince the judge to give you the majority of the assets. And when people's relationships fall apart and they end up in a courtroom, It is very easy. It's very tempting to try to go after the majority of the assets and the amount of money that you end up spending on lawyers is directly related to how much money you accumulated over the course of the marriage, not what you had coming in. And so I think that's why it's super important that people understand that you don't need to have a ton of wealth coming into your relationship, coming into your marriage to benefit from a prenup. And in fact, the millionaire athletes and celebrities they can afford to pay lawyers forever. Uh, it's the middle-class couples who've got net worth 250 grand to 1 mm-hmm. million that really can't afford to be dropping tens of thousands of dollars a month going through divorce litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and to pay a few grand 
to have that insurance policy at the beginning of your relationship to know that you're never going to be one of those people that end up in a courtroom spending tens of thousands, maybe even more Mm -hmm. on attorneys. I think it is a small price to pay. And if you can set down some financial guidelines to put your relationship on the right track financially at the same time, to me, obviously I'm biased, but to me it's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. So it almost sounds like you're part marriage counselor, even before the whole official marriage. It's consummated. I I probably get it honestly and maybe in my blood. My dad taught counseling oh. at the university level for over 40 years. And oh. I have a sister who is a care counselor and therapist. And oh. I think I have a little bit of that in me. And if you litigate a thousand divorce cases and you end up being a little bit of a counselor yourself. So yeah, this is this is my mission now is to keep people out of messy divorces. One, by hopefully giving them the framework to hopefully prevent the divorce in the first place, but also to make sure that if the relationship comes to an end, that it's not going to be a messy one and try to make it as simple and inexpensive as possible. You certainly won me over. I like that perspective of having that annual, lack of a better word, board meeting or shareholder meeting and really check in on each other in terms of the finance aspect I'd imagine whether each other's happy and the, the general atmosphere. If anything, we need more people like you and having this kind of conversation. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think more people need to be having these conversations for sure. So for those who are, here's an elephant in the room question would be, have you ever had a consult where as they're just for the first time revealing their financials or debt loads or what have you, that they realize, oh, this is probably not going to work out? I have seen a couple of situations where I had one person that I met with where when I explained to him that both spouses were going to have to be completely transparent about their finances uh, with each other for the prenup to be enforceable, this individual told me, I couldn't share that. (laughs) There's no way I could share that information. That's a red flag right there. (laughs) And not every couple needs to get married. And if you're not ready to lay down that kind of level of transparency, mm-hmm. then maybe marriage isn't for you. Maybe dating is, is, the, is the way to continue going. I'm not somebody who says if the relationship doesn't work out, that that's a negative. Sometimes hitting it off at the pass and a couple realizing that yeah. they're not right for each other throughout this process, maybe mm-hmm. that's the right thing to happen. But I think for the strong majority of couples, it is, even if they somewhat uncomfortable, it is a necessary conversation um, that couples need to have. Even if you have to force that conversation, that is going to pay dividends down the line because mm-hmm. um, it's much better to have this conversation early while everything is theoretical than to be having these conversations in the midst of an argument mm-hmm. 10 years into your marriage. So then I guess the hardest question to close out would be, how does one even bring up <laughs> Hey, honey, I love you. Let's have a prenup. I, yeah, I, I can't. Im- what's the share? Like, what, what will be your advice? Yeah, no, and that is a great question. Um, my advice is um, potentially a little bit counterintuitive, and that is don't lead with the word prenup. I think we can <laughs> all admit that it is a uh, heavy word, it mm. carries some stigma. And if you just pop it for the first time on your loved one, mm-hmm. hey, I want a prenup, there is a good chance that the conversation may not go well. I think what you do is start with, like I was talking about previously, the component parts of what it is you want to achieve mm-hmm. rather than the word prenup and say, I want our, our relationship to have the absolute best chance of success. And part of that is getting on the same page financially. Is it a good idea for us to be transparent with our finances? Can we set down some rules about how we're going to check in with each other 
over the course of our marriage uh, surrounding the finances? Can we set some basic rules about spending and saving and retirement that we both agree to, that we both think is are going to support the goals that we have for our future? And yes, can we protect each other from the debt that we're each bringing in and just be clear about what falls into mine, yours and ours, Beckett. So these things don't become disputes down the road. And if you can agree on all of those things, as well as what would be fair if, if our relationship doesn't make it, if we're getting married and we're 30 and we're going to live to 90, I hope we last as those 60 years. Well, we but- have someone here that can help us with that on a mobility <laughs> right. end. Right. Let's get to 90 first and then let's you be You want to as- be able to spend that money when you get to 90. Exactly. Let's be as healthy physically, emotionally, relationally mm-hmm. as possible. And if you can come to an agreement on all of those things, what you were talking about is a prenup. And then you can say, hey, let's listen to this podcast that I heard with Anthony Chen and learn about how yeah, a prenup might benefit our relationship. Yeah. Speaking of, I believe you have a book coming out. I do have a book. It is out. It is on Amazon. It is called The Prenup Prescription, Meet the Premarital Contract Designed to Save Your Marriage. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, for those who are listening in and having kind of their minds blown in terms of, oh, I didn't know prenups can do all of this. And as they're considering making it official with their loved one, how can they best find you in terms of getting that conversation started? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So you can first, you can go to prenups.com. There is a wealth of information on that website. We've got links to videos. There is a free ebook download on the website. There is a link out to buy the full book on Amazon for those that want to dive deep. And if you want to get this information in little tidbit sizes, I am prenup guy on Instagram. Right. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So for a kind of circle back questions for our guests would be, since we're on the topic of heading issues off at the past, and we're touch a lot about physical health, uh, relationship, financial health, a uh, little plug for me there, uh, and really setting the goal of hitting age 70 and 80, being able to be mobile physically, but also mobile relationship-wise in terms of commitment towards each other. Uh, this would be maybe a little bit more personal of a question would be, with your experience in running your business and running your practice and working with your clients, two things. One, what is the most common thing you've noticed for those who have been successful in reaching their goals? Would be whether maintaining and improving their mobility or maintaining a happy marriage. What's the one positive thing you've noticed that's common? And the second follow-up question, what is the most common thing that is a critical failure point? cause them to not reach that particular goal. So giving our guests here a little time to think about it. So this, of course, is the compliance or legalese portion of the show. This show is sponsored and brought to yours, truly, Anthony Chen with Lighthouse Financial Network. Securities and advisory services offered through Ozaic, member FINRA SIPC. Ozaic is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names. Products or services referenced here are independent of Ozaic. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me at number 631-465-9090. Extension here is 5075, or preferably through my email, which is really just my full name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N, at lfnlc.com, or you can connect with me 
here on LinkedIn, which is just Anthony Chen. I'm the only guy out there with glasses and with the elephant logo behind. Now, circling back to our guests here. So again, uh, the question is, since we were on the whole theme and subject of heading things off at the past and really winning the game of life, being living up to mobile at age 70 and 80 physically, and also relationship and, and, and emotional health-wise, what is the one thing that you notice as a commonality of what got them to be successful and what is the one thing that caused a failure? So if I had to guess for both of us, commitment oh. would be it. So you mm. have to be committed to your practice of Pilates as well as your commitment to movement. If you are not consistent with that, again, going back to say a gym reference or even you say you have a toddler, you find a toddler, mm-hmm. not, not just random on the road, but <laughs> yeah. if you have a toddler at home, you're used to picking them up, no problem. If you have not seen a toddler and you've never picked one up, it's it's a funky thing. It's not a natural thing. It's the consistency of being able to develop a motor plan and being able to commit to it. The biggest failure, if we're going to go into that, is probably that lack of consistency, the lack of challenging yourself and putting yourself out there. The only way our balance gets better if it's challenging to you. And that can be a scary thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So you have to challenge yourself to get outside of that box of comfort, so to speak. Thank you. Aaron? First, I'm going to say that I loved Amanda's answer. My dad used to say the secret to a long marriage is committing to the idea of commitment. That's a great one. But I will say that it is communication. A lot of people debate what is the biggest factor of divorce. Some people say it's infidelity. Some people say it's finances. Or, But really, I think it all, all of those things stem back to uh, a failure to communicate and the communication lines breaking down in a relationship. And along the same lines, what makes people successful is that commitment to communication keeping the lines of communication open in your marriage, whether it is about finances, whether it is about emotions or the kids or family, anything else going on in your life, keeping the communication strong and exercising that muscle is really going to pay off in the long term in your relationship. So that was the success side of things. What would be the failure point? Oh, the, the failure point is the, is the lack of communication, like is, is, the breakdown, mm-hmm. is the breakdown in communication in relationships. Yeah, same token. All right, thank you. Thank you for our two guests here. As I said, we're closing out what we would call Anthony's financial take. So working on kind of the particular theme here, what would make a successful financial goal or plan? Stealing the highlights for my guests is one is definitely the commitment to be able to stay consistent on a plan. A uh, financial plan is not successful overnight. It's not like winning the lotto, although that would not be a sound <laughs> financial plan, buying a lot of lot, lot of tickets, but it's really being consistent. And if one is married or having running a business or particularly with business partners, it's that communication and transparency side of things that will either float or sink any particular financial plan. And that is a little bit of today's Anthony's Financial Take. Thank you for listening in to Family Business Radio. Until next time.